trigger warning, this podcast contains deep discussions about OCD, grief and suicide or suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a podcaster, aspiring journalist and presenter. Sean Flores is the host of The Flower Hour, where he talks to people from all walks of life about their journeys. Sean prides himself on speaking to people with different political beliefs and perspectives and tries to break down social barriers as much as he does mental health barriers. He's also done two TEDx talks as well. In this episode, we discuss Sean's lived experience of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder and his diagnosis of it in April 2022. We particularly talk about something called puro, which is a severe form of the neurological condition and how it manifests itself in his thoughts and his day-to-day life. 2022 has also been an extremely difficult year for Sean. He has had to deal with multiple periods of grief when his cousin was murdered age 24 in Trinidad his aunt on his mother's side who died in October 2022 and his half-brother on his father's side who died aged 62 to bowel cancer. We discuss all of this grief and how, in his words, he has brought himself out of this period of darkness and tried to sort his life out. We explore the impact that losing his dad aged 6 on Christmas Day had on him as a child, how he's adjusted to a new male figure in his life when his stepdad entered his life, and how a form of cognitive behavioural therapy called exposure response prevention has helped him massively with his recovery. We also explore the journey he has gone on to become a mental health advocate for greater awareness around OCD, how he's turned all of this negative experience into the podcast he has now, and the stigmas that exist within the black community when it comes to mental health. So this is how my conversation with Sean Flores went. Sean Flores, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you, mate. It is a very cold winter Sunday morning we are doing this. I look outside my flat and it was actually foggy when I woke up, which is how I knew the state of play. How are you, mate? Yeah, man, I'm good, as I was saying to you. A little bit tired, but I'm feeling energised for having a conversation like this. I think you've got a very important platform. And as you and I were talking about, community is something that's very, very important. And you're right that outside it looks like there's going to be more snow that's coming and I'll be so honest with you I'm not the biggest snow fan I'm looking forward to some nice warm weather so yesterday I actually went to Mountain Warehouse and I had to actually buy some um, thermal socks because you know if Mm. you're cold at your extremities like your feet or your head you get cold all over so I'm like I had to get some thermal socks that's the state of affairs that I'm in currently no, you got, it's got to be done, man. I'm good, man. I'm good. I've got to buy some more thermal socks as well. I'm actually going to Norway in March to visit some family I've never visited before. And it's going to be like wow. minus three there. So I'm buying a, uh, shall we say, heavy duty coat for that weather. <laughs> oh, definitely. I'd recommend Mountain Warehouse, actually. Their coats are actually better than Canada Goose. 
um, and North Face, but it's just mm. North Face and Canada Goose have actually more marketing behind them. Yeah. I remember I was informed. I've actually always wanted to go to the Scandinavian countries. People keep telling me that everyone there looks like models. Yeah, trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Nor- Norwegian music is the one as well, man. I've listened to that for a couple of years. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> hyped. You have got such an interesting journey, mate. And I've, I've spoken with a few other guests about OCD specifically before, but I think your journey and your experience will just add to that catalogue and that archive really well for my listeners. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Man, I'm ready, man. I'm, I'm, I come to conversations 100% open and honest. I don't believe in doing any sort of podcast or having any sort of conversations. I'm not ready to put my life out there and put my heart on my sleeve. So I'm ready, man. Let's start the pod by, first of all, building this picture of your life and talking about your mental health journey, Sean. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Sean we meet here? So I think the Sean that you meet here is an accumulation of all of his best and worst experiences. The young man that had a testicular fortitude for life and has lived through a lot of hardship. So I think when I think about my life, the most traumatic moment that ever begun was when my dad died when I was six years old on Christmas Day. So obviously, my dad and I were extremely close and he lived with myself and my mum. My mum and my dad were married. My dad actually had me at 62 years old. I actually only found out recently that my dad died at 68 and I found that out via ancestry DNA and I found my half brother. But this is a whole new story. But what happened was my dad died and I just carried on with life. I think my mum did the best that she could do to make me feel like there was no void growing up. My aunties, so my mum's friends, all promised to look after me. We used to go back to Trinidad every single year, twice a year. I'm actually really grateful. My mum sacrificed a lot. And I, I, as I've gotten older, I've realised how much my mum did sacrifice. You know, when you're young, you have no concept of money, finances. Mm. You just live from day to day with no consequences. But I realised that. And my mum went through about six months of severe depression. She left her keys in the car, keys in the door, sorry, shoes on top of the car. She also had panic attacks. The police had to drive my mum home. And my mum has never been the same person. My mum's picked herself up and worked really hard to become the person that she is now. She's always been a hard worker. But I even found out that my mum got sent to England when my granddad, so my granddad was quite racist. He was um, black and Indian. But if you were dark skinned, my granddad didn't like people who were dark skinned, yet he was dark himself, which is a very strange concept, right? But my mum came over and she had to just make life work. And that's how she met my dad. My actual stepdad, so my mum's partner, he's in a home with vascular dementia. So he's never going to get better. He, he's he's ill as well himself. But my mum has been through a lot. And I think those are my earliest years experiencing mental health per se. But I never really conceptualized any of this. I didn't have the language. And look, I'll be very honest with you, coming from the Caribbean community, they don't talk about certain things, man. Mm. So I've had to learn to really undo a lot of the screws that were put in place to rebuild a new foundation, essentially. So in what happened, my next big traumatic experience, I would say, was abuse when I've been in relationships where actually looking back, Freddie, I've actually been mentally, emotionally, physically, well, physical abuse. I think as men, we don't really take it seriously because we're a bit like, oh, whatever. I was hit by my one of my girlfriends. One of my very first girlfriends actually, looking back, had severe eating disorder and severe depression. But she's changed her life now. She's in a far better place. I'm actually really happy. But at the time, looking back, I've actually realized, wow, there were a lot of people in my life who had mental health issues, but I did not understand it then. And then that takes me to my OCD journey. So 
my OCD journey, I had this obsessive idea that I had chlamydia. I'd caught chlamydia three times and this wasn't even from sleeping around. First relationship, I had chlamydia. A second girl I dated, she had given me chlamydia. Third girl that I had slept with, who was a model, she gave me chlamydia as well. And what I find a bit scary is a lot of these women never really took accountability. You know, it's enough to make a man want to be an insult, but I, I believe in humanity a lot better than that. I'll never become an insult. But that happened. But I couldn't stop this obsessive idea every time I went to the toilet that I had chlamydia. And I would cancel all my plans for the day and I'll go straight to the sexual health clinic. I had to have be tested. I had to prove I didn't have chlamydia. I couldn't just, I couldn't stop it. It was an obsessive idea, an obsessive thought. I just thought that was normal. And as time went on, that thought faded out. But then when I knew it was bad was when I paid £300 for a same day test and I was broke, bear this in mind. I just was so convinced I had something. I was like, Sean, this needs to stop now. That thought migrated onto HIV. Then that thought quickly left. But then I had a dream where I woke up and in this dream, I was gay, essentially. I had this, the back of a white guy with boxers, and I just woke up and I was convinced I was gay. It's very illogical to most people, but I woke up, I threw up, I was like, I'm gay, I'm gay. Couldn't stop looking for evidence. One thing you learn with OCD is people are constantly looking for evidence to prove their newfound mm. sexuality. So then what happened from that was I just learned to live with it. I lived with it for about two to three years. I thought the modern industry was making me gay. I thought the people I was around was making me gay. I thought if I could admit a guy was good looking, it was making me gay. These things came from ideas of when I was young. I think on homosexuality and how I grew up believing that homosexuality was almost something you catch. Because that was very much mm. the Caribbean idea. And it's a very Christian idea, actually, in many ways. Old school Christianity. Then what happened was when I was with one of my friends, I had a thought of rape. Rape popped into my head. It was just a, it was just a word. And I became so terrified, I screamed at my friend to leave. Well, it wasn't my friend. It was a girl that I was seeing, to be very honest. And this was when I was high. So it was heightened anxiety. I was so scared I was going to do something. So that happened. Mental health team came out to check for me. I said, I'll be okay. I just need to get therapy. So I started psychodynamic therapy. I thought I was a porn addict. So I joined a porn addicts group, essentially. I was like, I'm not resonating with this. And every time they spoke... <laughs> certain ideas just made me more obsessed if I was to be very honest with you so then the final moment for me was when I was out with one of my friends I was on the bus and a thought popped into my head and it was fight him it was a guy in front of me and I was like oh no 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 hold up hold up there's something going on here got off the bus had a breakdown I thought cool I had my breakdown I'll be okay I'll be able to get on with life what happened from there on in now was we go to the shop so I'm from Trinidad we went to a Trinidadian shop suicide image popped into my head jumped in an uber cried told all my friends i wanted to die i told them i'm depressed they stayed with me for the next couple of days and then i woke up on saturday the 4th of june earlier this year and i realized i just couldn't do it anymore i was badly mm. suicidal i called samaritans three days in a row because i just didn't want to be alive i really did not want to be alive my existence felt like a burden and then via saturday the 4th of june i found this woman on the internet called Emma Garrick, who was her name is on Instagram, the anxiety whisperer. And I begged her for a phone call. I said to her, please, there's something wrong with me. I said, I, I, I said, please. And she picked up the phone and I just started crying. I started crying my absolute eyes. I said, what's wrong with me? Why am I having these thoughts? Why am I having gay thoughts, rape thoughts, murder thoughts? Why am I having all of these thoughts? Am I a bad person? She just knew I had OCD there and then because OCD, so the difference with, for example, something like obsessive personality disorder is it obsessive personality disorder affects the people around you, whereas OCD affects you internally. It's more about the anxiety you have from within. Yeah, we started therapy on Monday and 
she was the light in my darkness. And since then, I've been on the path to recovery. I still have the thoughts. I've just learned to realize the thoughts say absolutely nothing about me. And I've tried to use my mental health advocacy via my journey and trying to be an activist for people that have mental health issues, especially men in particular. But yeah, I don't want to go on for too long, but yeah. There's a bloody lot to unpack there, mate. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to the grief of your dad if we can, because absolutely, Christmas Day is a, a joyous day for millions of people, whether they be Christian or non-religious. In this country, I know I have a lot of friends who are Jewish or Hindu or Sikh who still celebrate Christmas and have like a family dinner and stuff like that. So now that it is associated with the anniversary of your father's death, what is your relationship with it? So I think for a couple of years, I just got on with it. My mom and I never really had conversations about my dad's death. No one else really had conversations. I think my family just tried to do the best that they could by almost pretending it didn't exist. But very interestingly, this year, my plan is to spend some good quality time with my mom. My mom's back home now. She was in Trinidad. And I just want us to have conversations about what it was like at Christmas before. So I remember the one thing I always looked forward to for Christmas was I always look forward to building Lego. I'm a big Lego fanatic. I'm six foot two and a half black guy. You wouldn't expect it, but I love Lego. And I realized Lego was a big metaphor for me. Alongside a dictionary my dad got me for Christmas Eve before he died. I realized a lot of these things helped me to build understanding of the world and to seek purpose within the world. So I want to do something fun, like build some Lego. My therapist and I were talking about it. She said, I need to get some Lego for Christmas. Adult get back Lego. In touch yeah, with yeah, that. yeah. It's a thing, yeah. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get back in touch with that inner child and build Lego again. So this is something I'm planning to do. But I went to my dad's grave recently and I want to go back with my mum because I know my mum's in pain. And I think with everything that's happened in my life, I'm starting to embrace the fact that I was badly hurt when my dad died. My dad was my hero. You know, he took me to the park regularly. He took me to feed the ducks all the time. My dad was known for spoiling me. He loved me and he cherished me. And I think I was saying this to my therapist that I miss my father so much. Even as a grown man, I'm 28 now, but I miss my dad. And I think this year is going to have a very different meaning because I thought I was going to be dead earlier on this time this year with mm -hmm. the OCD. I thought I was going to be on death's door. I, Freddie, I was contemplating, do I jump off a bridge how do I take my life that's the most pain-free do I get a gun do I take pills so it's got a very different gratitude this year and I think I really I'm trying to take the time to understand that it really is a gift to be alive so I'm going to try and celebrate my dad's death you know he's moved on to a different place but he didn't die so I stopped living I think is the best way to explain it that's a beautiful way to put it mate you spoke there about memories of your dad so when you were getting older how did your mum give you these memories how did she keep the memory of your father alive was it stories about him was it pictures was it videos so look to be very honest with you my mum didn't really keep memories of my dad alive i think it's been okay. very painful for my mum she doesn't really talk about it and this is why i think it was quite frustrating for me growing up earlier this year i remember i called my mum when she was in trinidad and i said to my mum can you just tell me about my dad i want to know about my dad because i found my half brother freddie just to give you exactly how i found out about his death was i was on the phone to my therapist whatsapp um zoom call I said to my therapist i want to have a better relationship with my half brother because the last time me and my half brother had spoken was i was high and i had said to him bro i really want a relationship with you i said i can't change what happened with our dad but I said, I love you and I want a relationship. He essentially said to me, he can't help me with the search for my family and he wants to be left alone. And I just had to make peace of that. So when I was on the phone to my therapist, I said, I want a better relationship with my half-brother. So I typed in on Facebook. His name's Keith Stewart. Found out he had died on the 25th of September. And um, this was the least of my issues. So OCD, 
I tore my ACL, MCL, meniscus and fractured my leg Oof. as well. Ended up in hospital with pneumonia for three days. My cousin was murdered. He was found tied up with gunshot wounds. My auntie also had died. My other auntie who helped raise me also has pancreatic cancer. So all these different things were happening. So that my brother Dan was the least. But do you know what the irony of, of it is, Freddie? Here's what happened. The first time I ever saw my brother was at our dad's funeral. He gave a speech. My mum told me, I don't remember this. He gave a speech about my dad and then he made peace of it. He didn't try to keep in contact. And the last time I saw him was at his own funeral. Bloody hell. Isn't that irony? Mm. And when I was in this funeral, I felt really upset and I didn't know how to feel. I'll be very honest with you. I didn't know how to feel. But when I looked around that room, I realized so many other people in that room were also distant from my brother because he was like that. He had suffered from long-term depression, chronic depression. And his mum, Eugenia Flores, she had a stroke and he spent a long time looking after his mum. So I think in many ways, I wasn't the only one that struggled with a relationship with him. And I think I was mourning what I wanted it to be rather than what it could have been rather than the reality of what it was. And what it was, was I was not going to have a relationship with my half-brother the way that I wanted it. So I made peace of it. There's nothing else that I can do about it. I'm still a bit hurt by it. Don't get me wrong. But my memories of my father are a bit scattered. I think the trauma in my brain, because, you know, your brain tries to protect you. One thing I've been doing is I'm trying to do a lot more mushrooms. I'm on a trial for psilocybin with, in the NHS where they're testing out how mushrooms have an impact on OCD. I can't tell you too much about the trial because it's quite secret, but that's a little bit of a juicy information for you, you yourself and your listeners. But I'm using mushrooms to get in touch with myself in the sense of the inner child in me needs work, but I need to go back through those painful memories because I do not remember much, Freddie. Honestly, Mm. from my childhood, when people tell me about their childhood, I'm like, how do you even remember that? I'm like, I don't even remember most stuff from my childhood. So yeah, for example... I found, when I was looking through my house, I found, for example, this, right? This was my ID break. Oh, I forgot we're only doing audio. I was showing you. But, <laughs> for the listeners, um, tell the listeners what you've got. <laughs> so I've got an, something called an ID bracelet, which is essentially like a signature of my dad, essentially. This was his ID bracelet. I found this out when I was rummaging through my mum's room. Because I was like, why did you hide this for me? Why didn't you show it to me? And this is something I've really realized. that My mum spent a lot of time avoiding the trauma because I knew it was too hard for her to handle. But she left me out at the end of the day. She had a son who needed to know about his father. And I think one thing I'm going to do differently with my kids is do the inner work that I need to do so I can have those difficult conversations irrespective of my pain. Yes. And I think this is something I'm learning. So I'm learning that my mum may not have the tools, but I can meet her at the middle ground with the tool belt that I've got from therapy. So I think that's the best way for me to answer that question. Mm, No, it's a great way to to answer it, mate. I just want to talk about the grief more widely because you've gone through these three periods of grief. Your cousin your aunt and your half-brother and you've spoken really eloquently about your half-brother and you've spoken really eloquently about your cousin I know it's very hard to say but a which one of those perhaps affected you the most and and how did you recover from these when they were all quite stacked close together I think the only way that I could recover was by realizing I was already at war with my own mind what else was I going to really be at war with now right so when I told my therapist what happened my therapist said she doesn't know anybody that's had a worse luck this year and she's right Everything that happened to me, but it happened to me for a reason. I still struggle, Freddie. And I would say my half-brother was hard. My cousin was a hard one because he was always calling me and I didn't make the time for him to pick up the phone. I was so busy and I was going through all of my own stuff and I didn't want to talk um, about my OCD. And then to find out that he had um, been murdered was, it, it, it was, yeah, it was hard to deal with. Hmm. 
because we basically grew up together. Well, so when I used to go back to Trinidad every year, he lived down the road and his name was Redder. We always used to spend a lot of time together and his dad wasn't really in his life. He had a tough upbringing, but he was a good kid and mm. he was taken very young, man. So I'll say that was probably one of the hardest. My auntie who has cancer, she helped to raise me when my dad died, essentially. She's a fantastic auntie as well. But I think with everything that's happened, as much as grief has been the toughest thing, gratitude and appreciation has been another thing that's come out of it. I've got a different reason for life now. I think before I didn't really have a purpose for life. I didn't have a meaning. I didn't have a why, a what, a who. And I think now I have a lot more of that through it, all the death. People don't die, so I stop living, you know. People mm. die and they live through me. And that's the best way I'm trying to see life. I'm trying to live on with their message, trying to push their message on. Because we know death and taxes are the only two things guaranteed in life, right? And suffering, essentially. So I got to take every day for what it is, you know? Before we move on to the OCD and the domestic abuse, which you mentioned earlier, mate, I just want to have one more question about your cousin because it's obviously a massive shock and it sounded like it was the biggest shock for you because it came out of nowhere. Your other two periods of grief were health-related. So did it almost not feel real when you found out your cousin had died because of the way you died and because it was in a different country as well? I think most of what's happened this year hasn't felt real, if I'll be very honest with you. In many ways, this year has felt like a movie for me. I was shocked of everything that happened. And look, I'll take you through something else that happened earlier on this year. I basically fell in love with a girl who was married, right? Here's the complicated story. My friends always say to me that I'm a heartbreaker and whatnot. But me and this girl were talking on the internet for a while. Not Nothing, nothing romantic, nothing like that. She was vegan. She was from Trinidad. And um, I was just excited to meet another Trinidadian because I don't get to meet very many Trinidadians. So we met up in person and and I just said to her as a joke, you know, when we when you get a little loosey-goosey with the drinks, I'm going to have to hold a little waistline. So we had just got along well. We had both forgotten. But when she was on the way home, she, the way she was acting, there was something wrong, Freddie. Her behavior was up. And I said to her as a joke, you know, are you on curfew or something? And she didn't really respond. But as time went on, I found out that she was married. And I found out this guy was emotionally, mentally and financially abusing her. And um, mm. we had formed a bond. And I wanted her to get out of that relationship, not even necessarily to be with me, but to get her life back. And basically, the guy had ordered a private investigator to my door. He threatened me, blah, blah, blah. Holy she fled. shit. Bro, like, bro, she, um, she's fled the country now, all sorts. But the guy's a scumbag. I was dealing with some very bad thoughts. I wanted to kill the guy, Freddie. I thought I'd be very real with you. I think men who are abusive, I can't stand them. I can't stand because he's going to get away with what he's gone through. But there's other women out there who falsely accuse men of abuse. But there's women who have gone through what she went through. So I'll be so honest. He threatened my life, Freddie. You know, the guy said, I'll get people. I said, bro, do you want to go to war with me? I said, I know I sound middle class, but I said, I've got people who have nothing to lose. I said, if I make a couple calls now, your family's going to die. You're dead. I said, everyone around you is going to be a big issue. I said, and I'm prepared. I said, I'll go to jail happily. I'll come out like Malcolm X. I'll use it as a time to revolutionize myself and I'll get hench. As much as I make jokes like that, you know. But all jokes aside, I hate abusive men like that. And my life has been pretty much a movie for the whole year. But I've learned so much. I actually had to block the girl because I realized I put my life on the line for her and I got nothing out of it, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying you have to get anything out of it, but... She wasn't there for me with everything that had happened in my life earlier on this year. She was making excuses and so on. But I was staying up till three, four in the morning because of the time difference to have a conversation with her, to make sure she was okay when she was having panic attacks and when she was struggling. I was there for her, no matter how far that distance was. And I've realized I've got to give that to myself now. I need to come mm. back. You know, 
heartbreak is supposed to make me the henchest I've ever been, the smartest I've ever been, you know? <laughs> but I think this year has really felt like a movie. Everything hasn't really felt real. I've really been in a very dark place. And I'm still grateful that I didn't allow dark feelings to allow me to make a permanent decision. Because, you know, sometimes when we're in suffering, we think suicide is the only way out. But I would have hurt a lot of people that I love, Freddie. One of my really good friends, Malcolm, who I spoke about him in my TEDx talk, if you saw my second TEDx talk, but he inspired me, man. And when he struggled with mental health, he said he's looked around and thought about the friends. God, I feel emotional. He said he looked around at the friends that love him and he said he thought about me. And and when he told me he wanted to die, it, it made me tear up. So I was like, don't do that to me, bro. And I realized I couldn't do the same to him. So, yeah. The domestic abuse you mentioned earlier in the pod, mate, and I've actually interviewed one man who was domestically abused. He came on, Micah Thanimo, and I'll send you his podcast after we do this. And he spoke about the experience of being domestic abused. And he spoke about when, at the worst of it, he was actually accused of domestic abuse himself by the perpetrator. And he was a black man too. So, A, and I don't want to generalise experiences here, but how did it affect you as a man, first of all, and then adding in your heritage from the Caribbean and any other stigmas that might have precluded that? So what happened was, in my first relationship, this is me looking back, having a conversation with you and having the ability. In my very first relationship, she was emotionally and mentally abusive. I remember, for example, she said she was going to get back with me. She used me for sex and kicked me out, and I was so heartbroken. This was me, a young man, believing that my Christian dream was going to come true. The one girl I had sex with was the one I was going to be with for the rest of my life. She stalked me afterwards, all sorts. But in another one of my relationships... We got into an argument because I wanted to go somewhere and I wasn't bothered to wait for her anymore because I was waiting for two hours. She hit me. And when she hit me, I dragged her up onto the wall and I started, I was so angry, but I started crying because I was like, Sean, don't hit this girl. Because I'm like, I can't live with myself if this happened. So I screamed and I called my friends and she was saying stuff like, you're a pussy. You can't hit me. You can't fight me, blah, blah, blah. And we got back together, bear in mind. And there were times she would make jabs at me saying stuff like, and this is me just being very open. She'd be like, you're a pussy nigga. You didn't hit me back. You didn't do nothing. And I said, why do you want me to hit you back? She said, I want a man to rough me up and, you know, to handle me. And I said, that's not me. I said, I can do that. in, you know, maybe sex. I enjoy a little rough play. <laughs> yeah. but Within reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do know what I mean? Within reason. I'm not trying to punch your face in. But yeah. I, I look back and I realize how abusive that relationship was. And it was toxic. But look, let's be real. Man to man, toxic puss is the best puss usually, right? <laughs> but it's, it's the not, most dangerous one, mate. It's, it's the most dangerous, but listen, there's no longevity in that poster. I'll tell you that for now. And I'm just being real and candid because I want the listeners to really understand that if I come to this interview and I, if I'm not 100% honest, it's not going to help anyone, right? Mm. So that was one relationship. And in another relationship, this girl that I was dating, 5'11". I, I was just about to say her name, but I can't out her like that. I'm not trying to get any live or defamation. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But she came to Trinidad with me and I thought she was my dream girl, 5'11" model looking i thought this was the girl Mm. of my dreams because my mom's tall and i've realized i quite like a tall woman tall natural as you can tell so do i mate yeah and i'm five ten (laughs) five ten nah man listen you're you're six foot on the money that's all right (laughs) but but, so she came to trinidad right and we got into an argument and she wouldn't leave me alone she kept testing me so i had an afro comb and i i had used an afro comb to push her away And she was like, you're abusing me. You're doing this. You're doing that. She ignored me for the whole day. And the young me 
didn't know how to ignore it. So I wanted to have a conversation with her and be like, listen, why did you do that? Why are you always trying to test me and push me constantly? Why are you always essentially shit testing me? And we tried to have a conversation. She started going on her phone. So I grabbed her phone and I said, I'm trying to have a conversation with you. I should have walked away. This is me looking back. I should have walked away and realized she didn't have the space for a conversation. So I grabbed her phone. The girl punched me three times in the face. And I said to her, you hit me one more time. And I said, I'll knock you out. And she ran off to the toilet crying. And um, she had gone out with my auntie and I got drunk. I was mixing drinks because I was like, I'm an abuser. I'm a bad person. I didn't even hit this girl. But the way she made me feel, she was like, you're abusive. You did this. You did that. I was so drunk. And I remember I felt so bad. And she went back and told her family I abused her. And you know what was crazy? Here's what happened. Her family sat me down. And they turned around and they said to me, Sean, we know you didn't. But what happened was when I was with her, I thought there was something up with her mental health. And I said to her, so she had extreme mood swings. And I mean, mood swings where it was quite scary. You don't know if she loved you or hated you. Mm, This sounds like BPD to me, mate. (laughs) Right. But here's what I said to her, please get checked. I think you have bipolar. She got checked and she found that she hit all the criteria for um, being bipolar. Her behavior was so off. Bipolar is not as extreme as that. Bipolar is like manic and depressive in weeks. But BPD her is behavior, in hours. Yeah. But her behavior, apparently she showed symptoms of bipolar. I don't know what her diagnosis might be now, but this was years ago. I was mm. about 2019 or something oh, like that. I don't remember. Back then, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe now they've got more of an accurate testing, but it does sound like a bit like BPD looking back mm. on it now. But at the time it was bipolar, but... Domestic abuse is something that a lot of men don't talk about because as men, we're almost taught to take whatever is thrown at us. And then when we react, we're the worst possible human beings. Like, and look, let's be honest, right? Men are more prone to physical violence because that's the way we, we lash out and we show anger. Whereas a lot of how women attack us is character defamation. It's putting you down and they know it gets to us. So one thing I've learned now in relationships is when certain things are said to me, I've learned there's some people I will never stay with because I know it could draw me to a bad place and I don't ever want to be that kind of person, you know? When it comes to your OCD, mate, you've spoken very candidly and very honestly about Puro and I've spoken to a couple of guests about Puro before. For the listeners who haven't listened to those previous episodes... Tell them the difference between normal OCD, in quote-unquote air quotes, and pure O. So, yeah, you're right. In quote-unquote, it's the best thing, because there's no such thing as normal OCD. The most common OCD that we understand is cleaning OCD, but only 26.5% of the population actually have cleaning OCD. So what happens with OCD is, and it's the best way for me to explain it is, everybody gets intrusive thoughts. It's just people with OCD ruminate on those thoughts for too long. And the thoughts are ego dystonic. So they're against your morals and they're against your values, right? So this manifests in different ways. Someone with cleaning OCD might have an overestimation of the fear of contamination. So they might do something like, if I don't move that object there, something bad's going to happen. So they'll move the object or they might clean this area. Whereas something like known as pure O is purely in the mind. Pure O is not a scientific word, by the way. It just stands for purely obsessional. It's all mental. It's thoughts. It's compulsions. You might avoid stuff mentally as well. You might have magical thinking. There's different elements of that with OCD. So my one manifests via two main themes. So my two main themes are sexual orientation OCD, where I question my sexuality quite often. If I can admit a guy's good looking, I'm like... 
I'm gay, I'm gay. This means I'm gay. Oh God. If I can be like, oh, he's got good shoulders. I'm gay, I'm gay. I've just learned to live with it now anyway. I find it more funny than anything else. So there's that one. Then I also live with harm OCD, which is the fear of harming others and harming myself, which is what the word rape essentially terrified me with essentially. And when I thought I was gay, that sexual harm OCD. Then the next theme was suicide OCD, which is what hit me for the final breakdown. So OCD presents itself in different themes quite often. There's people who have fears of being bipolar, schizophrenic i've had it all i've had it all man i've um had existential ocd where you question is this life real what are we doing it for and even when things don't feel real one of the biggest symptoms are anxiety based disorders well although ocd is now classed as a compulsive based disorder so things such as bdd trichlomania all these different disorders are all based compulsively it's something in the brain that doesn't fire correctly and i've been reading a lot of books on this because i want to become a therapist actually and i'm going to be training back in the early new year as a life coach but that's how my ocd manifests itself and looking back on my childhood i strongly believe my mum's got some sort of anxiety-based disorder as well because look i love my mum, but some of her behavior is a bit irrational so if i remember correctly statistically speaking there's a 10 percent genetic factor you can get ocd but ocd can usually be triggered by traumatic events in life there's different factors at play but especially when it comes to ethnic minority communities and the black community nobody speaks about ocd i'm pretty much the only guy in the uk who speaks about ocd on such an open level i know another guy called duke al durham gotta give him credit where credit's due there's a documentary by channel i can't remember there was a girl on there called alison black who i've been trying to reach out to for ages she recently saw my video on tiktok so i'm so excited to connect with her and i've got a whatsapp group now with 12 black people that doesn't even sound like a lot but for my community that is huge speaking about ocd because look let's call a spade a spade the ocd community is incredibly whitewashed there's no other way to put it right I don't like to use the word whitewash, but where the shoe fits, wear it well. There's not many black people that speak about it. There's not many other ethnic minorities who speak about it. So this is why I speak about it so openly, because I want people to know from ethnic minority communities, and especially my community, that you're not alone. Freddie, I've had someone as far as Iran reach out to me saying that they saw my OCD podcast and they reached out. I've had doctors reach out. I've had a guy recently who said he's 42 years old. And he's been suffering with OCD for the last 30 years. He was just thankful I told my story. He said it gives him hope. This is what people don't understand. People suffer in silence and they won't talk. I want to give a voice to the voiceless and hope to the hopeless. That's amazing, mate. And as you said, because OCD is, I guess, a very stigmatized condition, I always joke that five years ago when I came into the mental health community in quote unquote I was diverse I'm a white middle class lad from East London do you know what I mean and thankfully through the podcast I've given a voice to a lot of people who are who are now bringing that conversation through but yeah I completely get what you mean I just want to talk about recovery and therapy now because you've spoken very brilliantly about the therapy you've done but I want to go specifically into it because one way you went about healing yourself was through a form of therapy called exposure response prevention it's a kind of subcategory of cbt shall we say and you yes. told me off fair it's the gold standard therapy for ocd so why is it and why is it so good for people with ocd so yeah with exposure response prevention there's an 80 percent success rate which is quite high to be very honest but yes there are the 20 percent that don't do very well with exposure response prevention because they can't handle the anxiety that comes with it so for example it's known as the gold standard because it teaches your brain essentially you rebuild new neural pathways where you learn to stop obsessing about the thought and you learn to realize 
thoughts are not facts and feelings are not facts. People need to understand this. Your brain is a machine. Your brain creates stories all the time. You cannot believe everything that happens in your brain. So one of my exposures had to be, I had to write a rape script, right? And this sounds probably very horrible to a lot of people. I had to write one where I was the rapist. And I remember, Freddie, I was crying my eyes out while I was writing this. And I said to my therapist, please, I don't want to keep doing this. I said, am I a bad person? And she had to be quite tough for me. She showed empathy, but this is therapy. This is not supposed to be easy. This is hard work here. She said to me, Sean, we need you to do this so you can get past this. And I had to write this script out of myself essentially being a rapist, how I did it, how I'm going to do it. After the session, I was so exhausted and I went to sleep. And what you learn to realize is a thought is just a thought. It doesn't mean you're going to do it. And some of my friends have come out and they've told me as well, they've had the same thoughts. And they believe that they've probably got OCD too and they're going to go and get the help that they need. So it's the gold standard because you're relearning new behaviors. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So people forget that anxiety is a learnt behavior. Yes, some of us can be more predisposed to it, but it's a learnt behavior. So what happens, right, is if you're afraid of big crowds, every time you avoid big crowds, you teach your brain it's something to be afraid of. With OCD, what you learn is to go towards your worst fears. You learn to walk into the belly of the beast and to come out alive. You learn to not avoid it. So what happens is, for example, when I was afraid that I was gay, I'd watch all the movies that had gay gay people in it, gay scenes, have conversations with my gay friends. So one of my exposures was my gay friend had to tell me all about his sex life. And I remember I was like, bro, I do not want to hear this, man. I barely even like hearing about other people's sex lives. But at the end of it, you sit with the anxiety and you realize one thing as well is anxiety always has a peak and it dips. You've just got to be able to survive the peak. Let it come back down. Deal with that discomfort. Handle it, handle it, handle it. So yeah, it's the gold standard because it gives people a lot of their life back. And as I said, I'm on a psilocybin trial where we're exploring other methods to help people beyond antidepressants because I was on 100 milligrams of surgery and I felt horrendous. I'm on 50 now and I'm looking to come off of it once the trial is finished. Yeah, so CBT, ERP is one method. Antidepressants, people usually, the science usually shows that both work very well in conjunction with one another. And there's many other ways. So for people with really severe OCD, they might do something called DBS, which is deep brain stimulation where they put two electrodes in their brain to help the connection between certain parts of their brain. But that's in a very, very extreme cases. But for the most part, CBT ERP is the one to go to. And people forget you can recover from OCD. OCD is not the end of your life. Let's reflect now on your mental health journey, Sean, before we move on. So first of all, given everything you've achieved, given everything that you have talk to me about in this podcast and the man that you are now Sean the great man you are now Sean I should say if your dad was listening to his podcast what would you say to him and what do you think he'd say to you I think the first thing is I'll say dad I miss you man um and I've worked so hard to become the man that I thought I could be even when you weren't around anymore I just, I think really, oh God, I feel really emotional. It's not a bad thing. I've learned to start sitting with my emotions, but I'd be like, Dad, I miss you, man. And I'm hoping to see you soon. And I'm hoping that we can discuss the good work we've done. And yeah, I think that's what I'd say. You know, I don't think I'd have a lot to say. I, I remember when I was meditating one day, an image of my dad popped up and the inner child of me ran up to my dad crying. And I just said, Dad, where did you go? So I think that's what I'd say to my dad. I'd say, I've missed you. It's been years, man. 
Because I think one thing we we underestimate is the impact of a good father on a child's life. Boys need fathers, man. And this is underestimated. Men are underappreciated and undervalued in society when it comes to fatherhood. I know the pain of growing up without a father. And so a lot of my friends have had good fathers and a lot of my friends have had bad fathers or fathers that weren't there. And they know the pain. So I'll just be thankful and grateful to see my dad again. I'll just be like, dad, I miss you. Yeah. Yeah. And as a final question, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to that six-year-old Sean who had just lost his dad or the Sean who had just been diagnosed with OCD or the Sean who was trying to process that triple grief of losing his cousin, his aunt and his half-brother in quick succession, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Don't take for granted your mental health because mental health really is not a constant. It is not a given. I think I grew up with this idea that I'll always be fine, but I've realized mental health is something you really have to work on. It's, it's almost like a skill, right? And I would say to myself, back in the day, I've done a lot of things that I think were very destructive for my body, like starving myself when I was in the modern industry because I wanted to have a certain high cheekbone structure. So I'd say to myself, you need to learn to be more forgiving. You need to learn to sit with your emotions more and allow yourself to feel sensitive. It's not a bad thing to be sensitive. You know, oh God, there's so much. I actually wrote a letter to myself the other day as one form of my therapy where I apologized to myself and I said, I wish that you had time, taken time to learn yourself a little bit more, to stop seeking validation and affirmation from the outside world. You are enough. You will always be enough. So I would honestly say to myself, gratitude journal from earlier on in your life because journaling has been such a key component in my life as well I journal every night I want to start getting into it every morning I want to start meditating every morning as well but don't take your mental health for granted because you can really be brought to the depths of despair and I was I was brought to the depths of despair so that's what I'd say to myself we talked all about your mental health journey mate You've now turned all these experiences into a massive positive through your mental health advocacy work, through the platform you've created, Flower Hour, the podcast. So first of all, take me back to the beginning. When did you first decide to go on this additional journey? So mm-hmm. what happened was for myself was I quite literally woke up one day and I said, I'm sick and tired of being depressed all the time. I'm sick and tired of being upset. You know, I can sit there and I can feel like this for as long as I can, but not doing anything about it is not helping me. So I went on the internet and I went on this channel called Dr. Tracy Marks and Therapy in a Nutshell. I looked at some of their tips to help get yourself out of depression or to help get yourself out of a victim mindset. And one of the things they were saying was gratitude journaling. So I started journaling and I remember at the beginning, I thought, what is with this nonsense? How is this going to really help me at all? It took time, but eventually got to it. But then there was one morning where I woke up and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I said, I'm going to go and change the world. So I went downstairs, got my laptop, opened up Google Docs, and I just started writing my story. And since then, I've trailblazed it ever since. I quite literally have bothered people so that I can write my story. I've written like over 15 articles. I've got another article in the Metro coming out, which is also very exciting. That's quite literally how I started my journey. And I just said, I'm going to put myself out there and try and be the voice that people needed when I was alone with my thoughts. Try to be that person where people can be like, oh, I know someone else that has OCD that's from my community. They're not alone. We're not alone. That's what I decided to be. I wanted to essentially be the change that I wanted to see in the world. 
you told me off air that OCD is in the top 10 most debilitating mental health conditions, Sean. So yeah. where did you get the evidence for that? And just tell me about the reality of it for people who, who have it. So for what I now understand, it has been changed. I know it's still part of the top debilitating illnesses in the world, but I don't think it's top 10 anymore, which is quite strange. I'm not sure the reasons why, but that was from the WHO organization. So whether or not you like the WHO organization or not is very and a very interesting one but yeah the times are changing a lot for people with OCD so we're living in quite a positive time more and more people are talking about it and a lot of people have it Eminem has OCD Sam Smith has OCD a Donald lot of Trump. artists bro yeah, yeah 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 a lot of artists Justin Timberlake Jessica Alba Kelly Rowland J. Cole a lot of people have it it's just people just don't talk about it so we're actually living in quite promising times when people are actually choosing to finally start speaking about things because the conversation around mental health is a growing conversation now. It's no longer just being relegated into the underground where people are not talking. It's changing. And I think as hard as it can be sometimes, he who has a why can enjoy any suffering. And that's a saying that I really resonated from. And that's from Frederick Nietzsche. So that's something I really, really resonate with. But times are changing for us with OCD. It doesn't take away from how hard it can be at times for some people, but You've got to be the change you want to see in the world. Not everyone has to be an ad advocate or an activist, but by telling your story, you're sharing so much of yourself and your story is potentially somebody else's healing. That's something I've really realized. You're also currently doing some work with an OCD charity called Orchard. So tell me about that and the work they do specifically in what sounds like very important OCD research. Yeah, so... I decided to volunteer with Orchard OCD. They're the only UK-based charity dedicated to getting faster and better treatment for people living with OCD. And it was founded by Nick Saru. So Nick has had OCD for over 30 years and he's had it really bad. You know, he had it with depression and so much more. And when I was in the hospital with pneumonia and I was going through really bad OCD of all the thoughts, and I didn't understand what was going on. Nick really helped me and I said to him I want to give back I said I don't just want to go through what I've gone through and that's it I want to give back and I really want to help people so I'm on board with as a volunteer advocate with them at the moment trying to get more volunteers we write articles we're trying to do press packages to try and get it out into the media and that's how I was able to find out about the psilocybin trial for OCD so we're trying to get more research out there as well so I write a lot of articles I write a lot of blogs I get people to come and write their story so it's actually quite a good time where we need more people so we're more than happy to have people there regardless of your color your background your race wherever you're from we're, we're happy to have people so OCD is actually incredibly underfunded by the NHS only 89p is spent per patient with OCD, yet one in 100 people have OCD. So that's about one to 2% of the population. So it's actually very, very common. But anxiety-based disorders such as OCD cost the NHS about 9 billion a year. And I think that should tell people something. By us not having enough research and treatment out there to help people, we're almost doing a disservice to society from a financial point of view, from a mental point of view, and not allowing people to be fully functioning contributing members to society in their full capacity so this is why we're trying to get more research out there more people speaking up because people will stop feeling so alone all of the time you know OCD is one of those illnesses that you live with and you can think at times I'm so alone with this no one else has this because it's only you stuck with your mind every single day but there's a lot more of us out there so Orchard we're trying to raise the profile of OCD trying to get more funding I've got big plans to drop a TEDx talk next year on OCD so it's big times because even the conversations about OCD only happen in America. Everything is all about Uncle Sam. When Uncle Sam sneezes, everyone else catches a cold. 
like me, you're also a podcaster in your own right through your podcast, Flower Hour. So what did you want to achieve with it? And what's the inspiration behind the name? So funnily enough, when I was having my OCD breakdown, I cancelled my podcast. I'm going to get back to it. I've still got a lot of recordings to do. I need to get an editor and so much more. But at the time, I wanted my podcast to be a space where I was learning and I was having conversations with people that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to have in you know my ordinary life. Because I think quite often people's paths can run parallel, but our tracks still run very different, right? So a lot of people I was having conversations with politically, I probably didn't agree with. I didn't agree with a lot of their lifestyles, but I wanted to expose myself to different people, people that would challenge my viewpoints of the world. Because I think quite often we live in echo chambers in the world and people do not come out of their echo chambers. And I wanted that podcast to be in some essences, a safe space to challenge ideas, free speech, free inquiry, free thought, freedom to offend, freedom to get through these difficult topics without being shouted down. I wanted it to be a space where we can come and learn something new. And one of my idols is um, Diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett. I want him to be my mentor someday. I've really got a lot of respect for him for everything that he does. And I named it Flower. So my surname in Spanish means flowers. And I actually realized it's also Portuguese as well. But I'm learning about my ancestry because I actually ordered an ancestry DNA test. So I've still got a bit more to learn. But flowers, quite often, we forget how gentle and important they are to the environment. But they're essential to pollinate everything that goes on. Without flowers, you wouldn't really have anything. And I want people to understand every time you pick up a flower, you disturb the ecosystem. But when you watch a flower, you watch it bloom, you water it, you nourish it, you give it the right sunlight, beautiful things can grow. And that's what I want my podcast to essentially be. Or I wanted it to be a space where you come in, you get in the car where the conversation is us driving. But then what happens is I drop you off at the other person's door and I let you have a conversation with that other person. I wanted to be a medium or a conduit to change, essentially, is the best way to say it. And with flowers, flowers are essential to the universe. They pollinate everything. So what better way to have a play on my surname, but to also recognize the importance of actual flowers per se. Have you been given your flowers yet? I would say yes, I have. And in the past, I was very guilty of going after achievement to achievement to achievement. I've started to look at things very differently. You know, for example, you having a conversation with me, you recognizing me as somebody worth having a conversation with and your listeners to listen to, that's giving me flowers. You don't have to directly, you know, tell me, but that's giving someone their flowers, essentially. You're saying I'm worth listening to, I'm worthwhile for people to hear. So in many ways, I'm getting a lot more of my flowers, but I've had to change my mindset around it, Freddie. Before in the past, I wasn't like that. So this is something I've had to learn. This hasn't come overnight because I think... In society, especially as men, we attribute success to our achievements and to our status. But I think there's so much more internally that we've got to do to recognize that there's many different achievements. For example, I don't bite my nails anymore. I went and got acrylics done, so I stopped biting my nails. That was an achievement in itself. I had to give myself my flowers. When I gratitude journal every night, I have to give myself my flowers as well. I've had to do all these different things to recognize I'm doing a lot better than I thought I was. And life isn't always as bad as I think it is. So even if I'm not always feeling like people are giving me my flowers, I know they are. But also I'm trying to give myself my flowers. I'm trying to actually practice self-care and gratitude to realize just how far I've come, but also how much further I do have to go. 
I also stopped biting my nails about two years ago, mate, and I realized it was a big self-harm tactic. So massive congrats wow. to you as well, because it's a big thing that I had to go through and it was very trauma-related and I had to do a lot of therapy called EMDR therapy. And one way that I tackled it was through using EMDR. But what I do want to build on that question I gave you as a sort of fun little slang-related question is we spoke off air about the work that we do in this space and the how should we put it, the elephant in the room of awareness days, shall we say, and how when awareness days come around, I don't really put much energy into them anymore because what I tend to have, and it's a negative perhaps or pessimistic outlet outlook, I should say, that's grown because what tends to happen is everyone dives in on those days, everyone from within the mainstream. Some people, in my opinion, use it as a bit of a clout chaser and then they drop it off for the rest of the year. I've been obviously very pessimistic about it, but I'm willing to be challenged on my outlook. <laughs> what is your perspective on these days as a person in the space too? Well, I suppose if you really want a challenge, I think pessimism is nothing more than a form of social negativity, right? The world is a far better place than we think it is. And I think this is why we have to be very careful with the media we consume. I don't watch the news anymore. The news no longer has, really has a place in my life. And psychologically, we notice the news does nothing good for our brains. And it's been proven time and time again. And a great acronym for CNN is constantly negative news. The news operates on cycles, media, fear, moral panics, policies. If people watch the news, they start to realize that the world is not as much of a bad place as it is. You should consume more positive news and you'll have a very different interaction and outlook with the world. And I grew up watching the news every single night and it put unnecessary fear into me and it puts a lot of unnecessary fear into people. But the elephant in the room is awareness days. I think a lot of people clout chase and this is the issue with the media machine that we have. We incentivize people to live for moments rather than to live for movements now. Right. And I think movements are supposed to change the course of time, whereas moments only operate within a very short space of time. Yes. I think influencers are probably arguably one of the worst things to ever happen to the media. And in many ways, people would call me an influencer, but I try not to label label myself like that. I try to be the right influence on the world. I try to use the platform, the social and the cultural capital that I've got to have in very important conversations. And I think as much as the media can be negative, there's the positive parts of the media. I think there's good and bad with everything. But I think overall, it's the distribution and the way we apply these awareness days and who we listen to is what's important. This is why you've got to be careful what you digest and what you metabolize when you digest. But I would say all in all, if it wasn't for the media, I wouldn't have been aware people had OCD. Just think about it a couple of years ago. Let's say five, 10 years ago. Do you know what? Let's go back even further. Let's go back 20 years ago, right? We did not know there were certain mental illnesses. And if it wasn't for the advent of um, the World Wide Web, we wouldn't be able to have certain conversations. What the World Wide Web did was it allowed the world to be a smaller place, but more global in some aspects. So someone from Iran was able to reach out to me about OCD. Somebody in Wales, Ireland, Scotland. If it wasn't for the World Wide Web and the media, we wouldn't be able to have that. So We've got to remember it's the way in which we use this. So, for example, guns inherently aren't bad. It's the person behind the trigger that is bad, right? Or knives aren't bad. It's the way we use the knives. That's the way I try to think about things. I try to look at things with a bit more of a duality now rather than just black and white. And this is something you learn in CBT too, where you learn not to just have black and white thinking. You learn to operate <laughs> within the gray area. And I've been really guilty in the past of black and white thinking, and I'm still victim to it sometimes. But I think the media is more of a force for good 
but it's how we apply it to the modern day world. Like, for example, right? I hate TikTok. I, I hate Instagram. But part of the media machine means millions, billions of people are using it. I'd be a fool to not play into the media to push the message out there that I've got even more. I have to use it as a conduit for positive change, even if I don't like it. And there's another saying, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, yeah. The final issue you want to discuss in this advocacy work, Sean, and you touched on it a little bit already, is attitudes towards mental health from the black community in air quotes. And I don't like to, to stereotype or to generalize because the black community is made up of hundreds of different nationalities. It's made up of different communities. It's made up of different people from all sorts of different experiences. However, you are of Caribbean heritage, Trinidadian. Yes. So tell me about the specific stigmas in this community and what you want to talk about here. I think one of the biggest issues we have within the community that I'm from, and I think this actually probably range true of a lot of Caribbean countries as well, is protelization. So if anyone doesn't know what that word means, it's essentially the colonization of religion. So when the European colonizers came to um, the Caribbean, if you want a random fact, in 1504, Diego Columbus, Christopher Columbus's son, established the first church in Jamaica. Now there's more churches per square mile in Jamaica than anywhere else in the world. Now, if that's not religious colonization or spiritual colonization, I don't know what is. Protelization had a huge impact on the darker lands and the darker parts of the world is the best way to put it. And a lot of these attitudes, which is essentially Christian fundamentalism, have leaked into the way we understand mental health. And a great one where I've often said to people is I've had Seventh-day Adventists reach out to me and talk about my OCD. And they've turned around and they've said, you've got demons in you. And I know people mean mean well, they don't mean bad. And this is something I've had to realize. Again, duality, right? Just because someone's message isn't the best doesn't mean that they don't have good intentions. Offense is taken, not given, right? If I take offense at everything someone says to me, I'll be constantly hustling a new grievance. And we live in a time of new grievance hustlers and a bit of a grievance culture, right? But secular treatment triumphs over religious dogma. I want that to sit with people. We live in a time where science is combating religion. Some people would believe that science works alongside religion. Mm, I beg to differ in some aspects. I can see how. But a couple of years ago, if you had gone to a, a pastor and said, pastor, I've got these thoughts, your pastor would say, I'll pray for you. You need help. There's something wrong with you. Now we're learning to realize it's something with the brain now, maybe if you still want to hold into the belief that it's something spiritual and religious, you're entitled to do that. That's your freedom of thought. That's your freedom of action. But I align more with secular treatment can triumph over religious dogma. I understand humans need something to believe in. I'm a bit more agnostic myself. But the Caribbean community, Christian fundamentalism has leaked into so many parts of our life, which is typically conservatism. It's the belief in a strong family structure, which is not a bad thing. It's the belief in church and any sort of other religious institution but that has also been to our downfall however if you look historically you understand why the church has had such a powerful impact in the community and the reality is during such hard times such as slavery and colonization people needed something to believe in that was bigger than their reality at the time so that's something that's really had an impact on this to this day but i think First generation Caribbean kids like me are, are changing the game. We're having the conversations that the community don't want to have. Um, I'm daring to speak truth to the pillars that I grew up with. And I'm not learning to knock down the pillar entirely. I'm learning to chip away at certain parts and put in new material because not everything I grew up with was inherently bad. 
I think I learned so much from my childhood. So for example, I went to something like Pathfinders, which truthfully, Pathfinders was an absolute waste of my Sundays. I would have rather have gone and played football or athletics, but I learned something from it. I learned what I didn't like. I really learned that Pathfinders is almost like a religious scouts. And I'll give you an example. One of the songs that I still remember to this day is We Are Soldiers in the army oh we got a fight but some may have to die we got a hold until the bloodstained banner or we got a hold until we die you're teaching kids to essentially go to a religious war if you listen to the lyrics you're teaching kids to go to war with the religion as their banner do you know how ridiculous that is well in my opinion but i learned i didn't like it but i learned a lot of great morals and values from the church but not all of them i agree with so for example, the demonization of all drug use. We know drug use inherently is not bad. There's scriptures and there's evidence that proves that a lot of people in the Bible were on psychedelic substances of some sort. Or wine. People, <laughs> wine is a drug. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this is what I mean by a lot of the archaic views are pushed through fundamentalism, but conservatism leaks in with that. Mm. And conservatism is essentially, you don't want to have anything to change your new world view. Whereas liberalism is, they go with anything that's trending. So I think I'm a little bit of a cross between the middle ground. I, mm. I like to deal with fact and I like to deal with reason, but I also do understand why some things are the way that they are. But the Caribbean community is a changing community. I can't understand completely what you mean, mate. And I'm a little bit like that. No one can nail me down to what my political belief is anymore. And there's a famous saying that the yeah. subject that you're most read up about is your most conservative one is a really interesting one and I've, I'd learned a lot about a particular issue recently and I was like oh that saying actually rings true anyway I've got one more final question before we move on to quick fire mental health chat and it's similar to my question in the last section which was what has this advocacy journey taught you about yourself the advocacy journey has taught me that I have a community to serve the community have pulled me up and supported me in many parts of my life but I need to give back in ways that I never thought I'd have been able to give back and as I said he who has a why can endure any suffering. So whilst I've been through a lot of hardship, I have a why now. And there's a lot of other people out there in the community who need someone like me to speak up, to give them a chance, a shot at life, or, you know, for them to realize, as I said, that they're not alone and that they should stop suffering in silence. So that's the one thing I've learned. But I've also learned that I know nothing at all. You know, I'm sure you've probably realized this through reading and through advocacy from what you do, you realize, oh goodness, I know nothing. I have so much more to learn. Because, you know, I often say to people that the times are always changing. We're getting new information all the time. But you realize, for me to learn everything I want to learn, I, I laugh about this and I often say, I might as well go to prison so I can go and sit down and read all my books and come out like Malcolm X. But there's so much to learn out there. Mm. And I've learned I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly changing. Being a human means I'm fluid. It means that there's this here, there's that here. But I'm not a fixed sense of who I am anymore. I think I'm learning to be, what is it? To, Bruce Lee says to be like water, essentially. I think is he has a saying like that. So I'm learning to realize that I need to practice, for example, more empathy. That's something I've lacked in the past, not because I've wanted to, but because I was afraid of my sensitivities. But these are some of the things that I'm really starting to learn through my advocacy and that you can save people's lives and give them hope from a simple conversation if you have the emotional and the mental fortitude to make some time for people, you know, people need it. As much as we're living in a more global time than ever before, we're more lonely than we've ever been, Freddie. And mm. isn't that crazy? Mm. So that, this is something else I'm really learning, that community is 
critical for humanity. We all need to be part of a tribe. We all need to feel special, wanted, purposeful. And I'm hoping that through my advocacy, I'm going to be able to do that. The more you know, the more you know, you don't know shit. And that is an MF Absolutely. Doom Absolutely. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Sean, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It's a general natter and a chat about mental health, nice and quick fire. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? It's not too bad, you know. I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in a decent place these days. I think I'm learning to take every day as it comes and to realise that, again, you're going to fluctuate. Humans are never solid in one thing. So I've learned to stop worrying when I'm not always feeling my best. I'm learning to just make peace with some days are going to be good, some days are going to be bad. Not every day is going to be sunshine and rainbow so that's something something i'm really starting to realize how's yours man yeah i'd say it's decent at the moment i'm in therapy at the moment to tackle a few things around anxiety disclosure and dating and putting stronger barriers in place obviously the work that i do with this it's a lot it's a lot for people to take in you know new people especially especially girls i think for people who have been on my story for a long time it's very easy for me to talk about my story quite quickly and Mm. that's fine for me but with girls i need to put healthy boundaries in place because my therapist said to me, you know, what you do is interesting. It's very intriguing. So when you tell people straight away, they immediately put their vulnerabilities in place to you. And then everything gets very intense very quickly. So, you know, I've had examples where I've not even gone on a date with a girl and I've told her about Ven, and it's suddenly become very intense very quickly. So I'm learning stuff like that. But overall, I'm in a decent place, man. Love to hear that, man. What age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mental health? 23, probably. Okay. Was it a gradual moment or was it Eureka? I knew something was up mentally, but I couldn't put my hands on it. Yeah, okay. that's the best. Around 23, I really, when I had that dream, I was like, there's something not quite right. Whereas before with the whole health anxiety, I was just like, hmm, I'm used to this. I'll be fine. I just thought it was normal, but yep. it was that dream when I realized, nah, there's something up here. Something's mm. not quite right. Can you tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have looking back? Did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight to lift off your shoulders on the one hand? Or on the other, did it feel like something very easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think I, was, I used to struggle to talk to my friends, but it wasn't because of them. It was just because of me. I didn't want to always feel weak i didn't really want to bother people but there was something up and i remember when i did speak to them they were like yeah bro like like we struggle with the same thing in many ways man like you're like you're honestly not alone i was like oh wow so it made me realize wow there's something that i need to sort out but that was one of them but sometimes it was at two ends of the spectrum i was stuck between this rock and a hard place at times but the first person i spoke to about my mental health professionally was obviously a therapist when i went to grief therapy then i did low intensity cbt but the grief therapy i'd say was probably one of the best for me grief therapy was oh it was fantastic honestly it allowed me to process a lot of my dad's death because i remember i would just cry session on session on session but i needed it because I was holding in years worth of pain, not letting it out. So grief therapy was probably one of the best things for me. And that's probably where I spoke about things the most. You've spoken about triggers. So my next question is going to be, what positive tools do you use in your own life to improve your mental health? So which ones have you found that have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried, but haven't? 
So I meditate every day, but I'm struggling to meditate at the moment. I'm not, not really sure why. I think I need to get my patience back up. But journaling has been fantastic for me. So obviously we understand journaling to be something called brain dumping, where you're taking stuff out from your brain and you're putting it on paper. So you're teaching your brain, you're teaching it new skills, you're practicing all the time to let things go. That has been absolutely fantastic for me. When I'm obsessing about something, get back to that journal. That has been, listen, I can't begin to tell you how good that one has been. Journaling, meditating, also just going to the gym, getting back into the gym, doing my rehab has been fantastic. Doing a bit of self-care on a Sunday has been good. Even writing articles and doing podcasts have been cathartic for me in many ways. And it's helped me to practice good mental health because again, I'm just practicing getting things out. And because I know it has a deeper purpose, it's really helping me with my own mental health. So yeah, they're quite unconventional actually. But the next thing I want to do is I want to start um, doing more cycling. That's something else I want to get back into. And cycling is going to help me for my knee, actually, to be honest. So I don't really have any excuse because I tore my ACL. So I need to strengthen this as much as possible. There's a mad story about that. You just said that reminded me, mate. I went to a, a city break with my mates in Valencia a couple months ago. And I had never ridden a bike for about 15 years, right? Knew how to ride it, but I was so yeah. anxious. And the boys were like, we're going to ride to the beach, which was like half an hour bike ride. And I was so anxious before they got the, all the bikes out. And I took the bike out of the shop and I was just kind of like trying to ride it around the road as you do, sort of get used to it. And I was I was failing, man. I was stressed. I was stressed. And the boys just said to me, I was one mini crash away from going, no, no, I'm going back to the room. I'll see you guys yeah. there. Like, see you guys when you get back. And they just went, no, no, Fred, we'll ride behind you. You do this. And do you know what it is? I was stressed the whole right there i was stressed the whole way i was just like don't crash into anyone people were coming up like from behind me to overtake i was stressed i was stressed and then we got there and i felt so sick i rid i'm not, I'm not gonna say perfectly but i rid pretty good the whole rest of the trip and i just just reminded me of that like i think with groups of boys no we might not always talk very openly about our mental health you know on a easy basis like a light switch like you know women can sometimes yeah. do but i think we're more supportive than we give ourselves credit for with each other yeah, and I think mandem, we talk about mental health in a very different way um, yep. compared to women. I think women will sit around a table and it'll almost be like an intervention therapy group. But I think this is something... It'll be Red Table. It'll be Jada Pinkett yeah. Smith. <laughs> Absolutely. Be careful, man. She might cheat yeah. on you and get you in an entanglement. But... Um, <laughs> I think with men, you're right, it is a bit different. Even with my friends, we're trying to practice more intervention style approaches. Because sometimes I think just sitting down and having a very real conversation with your boy and be like, bro, I'm a bit concerned about you right now. Mm. How's everything with you? And that's what I'm like with my friends. So I try to do a mix of the two. But sometimes the best way to get a conversation out of a man is take him to something that makes him happy. Go to football or if it's football, go to a pub, sit down and have a conversation, go to his setting if that makes Take sense the, the barbershop is a yeah, great yeah 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 absolutely yeah. what is the best book mate or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self-help related but it doesn't exclusively have to be jordan peterson 12 rules for life was a fantastic book i would say that was a book that it taught me about individuality and accountability that i can't change what happens i, I don't agree with all of jordan peterson's views i think a lot of his views of are a bit devoid at times such as yeah, he's don't try and heal. A parody of himself uh, recently. Yeah, yeah it's a bit sad. The idea of don't heal the world until you've healed yourself. I'm like Jordan. A yeah. lot of movements and life, people were not perfect, and I don't think people have to be perfect to make an impact on the world. But his book taught me individuality, and it taught me accountability, how yes. to be responsible for my own life, mm. and. As I said, I can't change what happens to me, but I can change what I do to the world. So that's something. His book really sat with me. David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me is a book I'm listening to at the moment. And he's got a new book I'm coming out called Never Finish. So that's his second book. So I'm really looking forward to David Goggins. 
Excellent. I put it on my many, many, many items on Amazon for bro, books. Bro, listen, on my list, I relate yeah. to you on that one. I'll tell you that, bro. Too many books that I want to read. Too many books, man. Honestly. It's like it's like when you add more TV shows, but books take two weeks or three weeks to sometimes read, not, not a couple of hours. <laughs> not at all, bro. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, mate, what would it be and why? He who has a why can endure any suffering. I think through darkness and pain, you come out and you realize what your light is. And there's something called post-traumatic growth where you learn to grow through your trauma. And I'm not saying trauma is to be desired in any way, shape or form, but the hardship you're going through now will set you up very differently to the world. And this is something I've really, really realized. You know, I didn't realize it in the moment. Don't get me wrong. But when you come out of it, you're like, I probably needed that. Or this is what I had to go through to be where I am now. And I'm not saying, as I said, this is to make it clear. I don't think it's to be desired. And I don't think you should try and put yourself through hardship. But you're going through something for a reason, whether it's for a higher cause, a higher power. You know, I'm not even religious, but I pray to a higher power every night. I try to do mm. that now. I learned this from one of my friends who's, um, she's suffered with alcoholism for a couple of years and she said part of aa they pray to a higher power and they get on their knees because it's humility and it's servitude and i'm like wow being of service again so being of service to community is one thing but recognizing that perhaps there's something out there i might not know what it is but by being of service revolutionary i love that man i've got one more question left and it's a broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? So, for example, I think one thing we need to stop doing is relegating men's chat shows to YouTube. It's almost become YouTube is so dominated by men. But when you go on TV, we have loose women. Where's loose men? I know they want to create one, but we need more chat shows of men having roundtable discussions, just talking about mental health. It's almost treated as if in society, as if it's a one-off now. Men talking about something on a one-off basis. We need more constant shows like this. And I think that would mainstream because could you imagine you and I talk about mental health and a guy comes in and he goes, bro, I'm really struggling this month. Like I need some help, man. I want to have a conversation. So women do it all the time, but men, we don't mm -hmm. do it. I think we're not encouraged to. And I think women are always telling us to talk about mental health. It's always women telling us to do it. And I think as men, we don't, we don't need other women to tell us that we need man them to have a conversation with. So I think by having more men like you and I having conversations about mental health, we're encouraging other men to, to realize, bro, this is a part of masculinity. This doesn't make our masculinity null and void. It's an element of it. So that's something else I think is really important. Having more and more spaces and platforms where we speak about it is going to be important. That's my biggest thing because I think representation matters in that sense. Maybe we can speak into existence, two of us on that panel one day, on that hypothetical show, bro. Listen, that would be, that would be gorgeous. You know what I mean? I think that would be absolutely fantastic, actually. Hopefully we can put that into existence. What a great way to end it on. This has been one of my favorite episodes, mate. And I think this is going to be one that's going to help so many of my listeners. So Sean Flores, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Humbled, man. I'm grateful to be on this platform and I think you're doing fantastic work. So I am in awe and I'm in gratitude and I'm looking forward to checking out even more of your work, man. I'm looking forward to the conversations that you're going to be having in the future with people. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Sean for being my special guest, for talking so openly about his OCD and for letting me check in with him. I'll put Sean's link tree where you can read and watch all of his work as well as subscribe to the Flower Hour in the show notes. 
I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who've tuned into this episode of the pod. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and you want to consider supporting us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent tea. The link for that is on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.